As we said earlier, he's risen. It's a traditional Easter greeting, right? Uh, and, and that applies to any Sunday of the year, any other day of the year for that matter. But of course, that's it's been tradition uh, in in churches around the world to uh, to utilize that greeting on Easter morning. A phrase that uh, we speak with uh, excitement, with confidence, uh, but it's a phrase that when it was first invoked 2,000 years ago brought about confusion. It was the angel at the tomb that, that of course, first said those words, but uh, it was a phrase that was met with confusion. It was one that uh, maybe many of Jesus' followers wanted to believe, but couldn't quite at first bring themselves to, to do so. And I think, I, if we're honest, I think it's a phrase that uh, can invoke questions today as well. Um, questions like, did Jesus really rise from the dead? I mean, we say that, did, did he really rise from the dead? Or, or why is it important? Why, why does it matter that, that Jesus rose from the dead? Or, or, or questions of, uh, what does it mean for me that, that Jesus rose from the dead? Those are all questions that, that uh, I think exist today. I think have existed throughout the past 2,000 years since Jesus has risen from the dead. And, and I would say that those are all questions that Luke seeks to answer as he concludes his gospel. So in his closing uh, words, Luke leaves us with wonderful pictures of, of people kind of asking those questions and moving from doubt to belief and moving from confusion to understanding and inaction to, to hopeful action. And, and so we're going to go through the last chapter of Luke this morning, and, and I trust that whether you've believed for 60 years that Jesus has risen from the dead or, or you're just grappling with that statement for the first time today, uh, there's something for you in today's text. And so, so with that, we're going to conclude our journey through Luke's gospel that we started all the way back in September. Since September, we've been kind of marching along to Easter Sunday here. And so... As we pick it up in chapter 24, the, the first question that, uh, that we see addressed by Luke is the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? A question regarding the, the historicity of the event, the reality of the fact. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And so as we read through the first 12 verses to start, we ought to, know, we ought to notice how, how Luke communicates in such a way as to provide assurance to those asking that question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? So Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So when we, when we consider the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection, I think we shouldn't we shouldn't miss the, the sometimes overlooked details that Luke communicates to us. Sometimes just the common, ordinary things, but that point to the fact that this is a real event. So Luke tells us exactly which day Jesus rose from the dead. He rose on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And, and not just any Sunday, but the Sunday after the Passover that had just taken place. So, so the event is placed firmly within recorded history. Um, Luke tells us exactly when during the day that the women went to the tomb. They, they didn't just go on Sunday, they went early at dawn. And he even tells us what they carried with them, what they had in their hands. They, they took spices that they had prepared. And, and those spices were taken in order to, to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial because they kind of had to do a hasty job two days before because the Sabbath was coming and they just had a short amount of time to take Jesus' body down from the cross, place it in the tomb before sundown. So they came back to finish the job. And because they, took the, because they brought these spices with them, we know that the women went to the tomb fully expecting to find Jesus' body. They didn't think his body was there, they wouldn't have brought spices. So they, they thought that they would find his body there, right where they had left it two days before. Uh, Luke tells us when they arrived at the tomb, the stone was already rolled away. Um, uh, in verse 10, Luke even tells us the, the names of the women that morning. He's, he's writing probably 30 years or so after these events. So it's quite possible that these women were still alive as Luke wrote this. Maybe that's why he named them specifically, because they were still alive. But, but even if they weren't, there would have been people alive still who talked to those women. So, so either the women themselves could validate what Luke is writing, or people who had spoken to those women could validate what they shared. And, and then in addition to that, we see that Peter, we're told Peter ran to the tomb, and when he got there, he found the linen cloths lying by themselves. I mean, these are all details that, that give credibility to the event. Luke is not making up a story in order to create a legend about Jesus. This is an actual event with details that he's giving to us. It's an event that Jesus' own followers didn't even think was possible. They didn't think it was possible. Even though they remembered the words Jesus spoke, the women were still perplexed at what they found. And when the women went and told the 11 disciples, Luke says, they thought it to be an idle tale. 
And uh, the English Standard Version from which we are reading is maybe a little bit nice in the translation. Most other English translations would say they considered it nonsense. So at first, the women didn't believe at first, the disciples didn't believe at first. But even though those, those first eyewitnesses had trouble that morning, really grasping the reality, Luke records the details for us because it was indeed reality. This is actually what happened. The, the two angels said it best when they said, Jesus is not here, he's risen. That was the reality of the situation. He was delivered into the hands of sinful men, just like he said he would be. He was crucified, just like he said he would be. And then he rose from the dead on the third day, just like he said he would. So multiple, multiple eyewitnesses attest to that fact. And what they leave us is a historical record that, that is clear in, in every way. That Jesus, who was dead and buried, has risen again. Now, you know, at times a person might say, yeah, but, but show me in recorded history where it's documented that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, show me where history says that. And it's right here. I mean, th- this is recorded history. A, a person might say, well, well, the, the English text, the English Bible that we have today, it's translated from Greek manuscripts that were, that were copied from other manuscripts and other manuscripts and so on back to the uh, originals. And uh, the original r- words were surely changed at some point along the way. So what we have isn't, wasn't what was really written. Uh, without going overly in depth on that, I, I will say there's ample evidence that the the words we read in English in our Bibles in 2022 are trustworthy and accurate when compared with the words written down by Luke himself. We can be quite confident in that. And, and what Luke did is similar to a newspaper reporter who would interview witnesses about an event and then, and then write an article for the newspaper. Uh, Luke is an historian who back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, told us that his account came from eyewitnesses, that he interviewed these individuals. And so a person today might go to the library and we can look up a newspaper article from 150 years ago and, and never even question its truthfulness, but then be unwilling to take Luke's description of Jesus and his resurrection as fact. And I think the question is, why are we tempted to review one, to view one as recorded history and the other as religious legend? And I would say to do that kind of shows a lack of consistency when we examine historically recorded events. What, what Luke has recorded for us is history. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? The answer to the historical question is yes. Yes, he did. And Luke has given us the, the details. He's given the event to us in written form. So we can be confident with the answer to that first question. Yes, Jesus really did rise from the dead. But even if we believe that answer, uh, maybe there's some theological questions that we have. Maybe a, maybe a question being, why is it important? that Jesus rose from the dead. Why, why does it matter? Jesus was the son of God at his birth. 
regardless of his death and resurrection, so, so why go through all that? He was already the Son of God. I mean, why not just come to earth, perform an endless display of powerful miracles, and then just expect people to kind of shape up and worship him based on all those miracles that he was doing? I mean, why not just do it that way? I think that the answer to that question is, is given by Jesus himself as he traveled on that first Easter morning to a town called Emmaus. So let's pick it up in chapter 24, verse 13. It says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these, have hap these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has in risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I, I just love how that whole scene unfolds. I mean, th th these two individuals find themselves blessed to be walking and talking with Jesus on the very day he was resurrected from the dead, and they don't even know it's him. I mean, think about that. Where would you want to be on the day of the resurrection? I would love to be walking on the road to Emmaus with Jesus. And here they are. They don't even know it's him. Their, their, their eyes, not, not recognizing Jesus' physical identity, mirrors... Um, mirrors their hearts not recognizing the theological significance of what had just happened over the course of the previous week. 
And so when Jesus asked them what, what, what they're discussing on the road, their response to him was, was filled with, with sadness and regret. I, I mean, Luke tells us they looked sad. Um, he records statements like uh, we had hoped that he would redeem, that he would be the one to redeem Israel. They said, you know, it's been three days since these things have happened. It's, it's like they had given up hope. Um, the two people spoke about the report of the empty tomb in a way which communicated their, their doubt about it. And, and what I find ironic in, in so many ways is that these two individuals gave what is perhaps one of the most compelling gospel presentations recorded in the Bible for us. I mean, when Jesus asked them what they were talking about, they spelled it out. They, 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 what they talked about was Jesus' miracles and his teachings, his arrest, his crucifixion, his empty tomb, the resurrection that was reported, the hoped-for redemption. I mean, they're, they're giving a clear gospel presentation to Jesus, and they don't even understand what they're saying. They don't. They're, they're simply reciting a string of events not, not a, a, a theologically significant progression. Isn't that ironic? They're so clearly proclaiming the gospel, and yet they don't even know. They don't even know what they're saying. So, so what does Jesus do? Well, first he calls them foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. I mean, Jesus just has a way of getting right to the point sometimes, doesn't he? Like, guys, you're missing it. You're so missing it. And, and after, after kind of that difficult truth, he, he utilizes the Old Testament scriptures to show them the necessity of the Messiah suffering and then entering into his glory. He goes back to the Old Testament and says, look, this was all supposed to happen. It was all foretold. And now I, th I, think, it's, I think it's a fair assumption that, that these two individuals were probably like, like ordinary Jews who, who subscribed to the common belief that the promised Messiah would redeem Israel by, by forcefully overthrowing whatever nation happened to be oppressing them at that time. And, and then, of course, it was the Romans. So I think it's fair to say that they assumed that. But Jesus showed them the foolishness of their understanding by taking them back to the Old Testament scriptures. And we're not told exactly what scriptures Jesus took them to. But I can't help but think it, 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 it might have been passages like this. I'll just read a few. From Isaiah chapter 50, it says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Uh, Isaiah 52. It's written, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Going a little farther into chapter 53, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or he could have went to some of the Psalms. Psalm chapter 2 says this, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm chapter 22, which Jesus referenced from the cross. He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Farther down, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see mock me. They make, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Or going farther down, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like the potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Or just one more from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. I, I mean, that's just a sampling of, of the Old Testament texts, which, which not only prophesy about the Messiah, but, but that he would suffer, the suffering of the Messiah. And, and there's so many more. I mean, there's so many more that, that, that we could read as well. The point is that the Old Testament scriptures are filled with prophecies made about the suffering which the Messiah would endure. And it's, it's not that the Messiah had to suffer just because it was prophesied that he would, but it's through his suffering and death that salvation came to mankind. It was prophesied because that's what needed to happen. So Exodus 12 talks about the necessity of a lamb giving its life in order to save the firstborn sons on Passover. Leviticus 4 talks about animals needing to be sacrificed in order to bring cleansing from sin. Um, Leviticus 16 talks about sacrifices needed to make atonement uh, for the high priest, for the whole nation. Uh, you get the writer of Hebrews in the Old Testament. He looks backward on all this, and, and I think he said it perfectly when he wrote, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All of those things in the Old Testament were looking forward to Jesus being the perfect suffering Messiah who would, through his own shed blood, take away sin. And so on that road to Emmaus, that first Easter morning, Jesus walks through the Old Testament with those two individuals and he makes those connections and he shows the necessity of Jesus, the Messiah, suffering and dying. But it wasn't just that, right? I mean, what, what, what does Luke tell us? That, uh, that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. So there's more to it. 
He didn't just highlight the suffering. Jesus also talked about the Messiah entering into his glory. And that's where the resurrection comes in. So Psalm 16 talks about my soul not being abandoned to Sheol. It talks about Holy One not seeing corruption or decay. Psalm 22 that we just uh, read a little bit ago, it ends by talking about life after death. Uh, Daniel 12 talks about resurrection that's only possible due to the work of the Son of Man that, that had been mentioned earlier. Uh, the story of Jonah, I mean, that, that is, it is clearly foreshadowing Jesus' resurrection when Jonah was brought up from the belly of the fish after three days. Jesus himself referenced that in Luke chapter 11. So the Old Testament speaks not just of the, of the Messiah's suffering, but, but of his glorious resurrection as well. And again, right, the Jewish nation and, and probably these two individuals, they expected that the Messiah would come with all military and earthly might to defeat the oppressors of the Jews. And so when Jesus suffered and died at the hands of their oppressors, it makes sense that the people would lose hope. And it makes sense that they would start talking in the past tense like these two did. We had hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel. We had hoped. They'd given up. But because Jesus came to defeat sin and death, not, not the Roman Empire, but sin and death, it was essential that Jesus rise from the dead, showing his victory over death. So his resurrection was essential because without it, there's no victory. There's no victory over sin and death without his resurrection. The Old Testament scriptures prophesied about it and pointed to it, and Jesus himself fulfilled it. And then on that road with those two individuals, Jesus cleared up that theological confusion that they had in their minds. I mean, the, the, those two individuals, I think, prove that a person can see Jesus with their physical eyes and, and yet not recognize him. I mean, they saw him, but they didn't recognize him. It's only when the eyes of our hearts are opened that we can understand Jesus' identity, see him for who he really is. That's what happened with these two individuals. Um, and the great thing for us is we don't have to see Jesus physically in order to clearly recognize him. And that's great because he's not physically walking on this earth right now. He will, once again, that day will come when he returns. But for right now, he's not here physically, but we can still clearly recognize him when our hearts are opened to him through the word of God. So what we saw displayed with those two individuals, and he does the same thing for us 2,000 years later. And, and so my, my prayer this morning is that, that we would have our hearts opened, that our hearts would be opened by God, that we might recognize the risen Jesus for who he really is. That's my prayer. So, so we've looked at kind of the, the, the historical questions about Jesus' resurrection. We've looked at theological questions. But there still might be a question that remains, so what does it mean for me that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, what are the implications upon my life? And so as we move into 
this next, this next point. You might, if you look at the sermon notes, you might think I'm pulling a pastor trick on, on point number three by making up a word. But I assure you, I did not make up this word. Webster and his dictionary confirmed it for me. Right? Implicational really is a word. I've never used it before today, but, but it really is a word. And so there are, there are two specific implicational areas regarding Jesus' resurrection, which he cleared up when he appeared to his disciples. So let's look at the first one. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. Jesus appears to his disciples. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So that, that paragraph addresses the reality that Jesus' resurrection body is truly a physical body. He, he wasn't a, a disembodied spirit just appearing there. He had flesh. He had bones. His hands, his feet still, still bore the scars of his crucifixion. I mean, he even ate a piece of fish just to drive the point home that he was there in a physical body. And so it, it is clear that Jesus' resurrection from the dead wasn't just his spirit rising from the dead. It was a physical resurrection. And so the question then is, what are the implications of that for us today? What does that mean? And I, I think there's lots of implications. Um, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to mention a couple and then give you a third one and expound on it just a little bit. But but one implication is that because the Bible says that Jesus' resurrection is just the first fruits of what is to come, that means that our resurrection as believers in Jesus will be a physical resurrection. Our eternal life will be one that is not just spiritual, but, but physical in nature. So we know that because of Jesus' resurrection. Another implication, Jesus his body included, was clearly himself as he stood before his disciples. Now, there were some obvious differences with his resurrection body because the other gospel writers tell us that he walked through a locked door. Okay, we can't do that. At least I, I know I can't, and I'm assuming nobody else can. So there's some differences there, but Jesus was still himself. And, and likewise, because he's the first fruits we will be ourselves upon our own physical resurrection. We're not reincarnated as someone or something else. We will be ourselves upon our resurrection. And the third implication, and, and I'll expand on this one a little bit more, in becoming a human, Jesus' physical body was, was part of who he was. It wasn't just a container in which he dwelled. And there's a big difference there. That's why his physical body was resurrected from the dead, because that was part of who he was. 
And in, uh, in our society today, it's, it's more and more common to hear people talk about being born in the wrong body or, or, or feeling like they're a person trapped in a body. And the statement being made really is that uh, my true self, who I really am, is what is inside of my body. I mean, that's what we're saying when we, or what we're hearing when, when uh, that statement is made. When it comes to... Uh, when it comes to anthropology, the study of humanity, that way of thinking goes completely against the truth proclaimed in the Bible. Those two ways of thinking are not compatible. We are not spiritual beings stuck in a physical body just waiting to be set free. We're not. Uh, There's actually a name for that. It's called Gnosticism, and, and it's been shown from the early days of the church to be heresy. Um, our, our, our physical body is just as much a part of who we are as our, as our soul, our, our, our mind, our spirit. Um, when God knit us together in our mother's womb, he was knitting together a physical body along with a soul. Now, and our physical body is marred by sin. I mean, we know that. But, but so is our soul. I mean, it, it, it's all marred by the effects of sin. So, so if we as Christians are, are going to have a right view of ourselves, and if we're going to help others have a right view of themselves, we have to be clear regarding the implications of Jesus' physical resurrection. Jesus died and was resurrected to save us, all of us. And I mean all of us, but all of us, right? Our bodies included, save all of us. His own physical resurrection proves that our soul and our body comprises who we are as a person. There's no way around that in this, in this scene, but in the rest of the Bible as well. So that's one of the implications of, of uh, Jesus' resurrection. The other implicational area that Jesus addressed with his disciples is that of their new mission— They got a new mission upon his resurrection. So look with me in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I think we've heard that before already. He hits on it again. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So again, I mean, Jesus utilized the Old Testament scriptures. He did that earlier to show that he must suffer, that he's entered into his glory. But now... He uses the Old Testament scriptures to show that it, that it prophesied that salvation would be available to all, not just the Jews, but to all nations. Upon his death and his resurrection, repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all nations. And it would start in Jerusalem and go out from there. And, and the promise from the Father would be sent upon them, and they were to stay in Jerusalem until that power from him came, uh, came upon them. And if that all sounds vaguely familiar, it, it maybe should, because that's exactly how Luke starts his second volume. 
Luke wrote the, the book of Acts as well. And in the first two chapters of Acts, he records those exact things happening. And then it goes on from there. So because Jesus rose from the dead and defeated the enemy of all mankind, not just the enemy of the Jews, that would, that would have been the Romans, but he defeated the enemy of all mankind, sin and death, because of that, the message needed to be proclaimed to all mankind across the entire earth. And, and, and just as the disciples were tasked with that great commission 2,000 years ago, uh, we're tasked with that same commission today. Uh, the mission hasn't changed. Because Jesus has risen from the dead and defeated sin and death, we're to go out into our world and proclaim that good news. Proclaim it to all who will hear it. And through the person of the Holy Spirit, the living God dwells within us. That wasn't just a promise for the disciples. That's been taking place for believers for 2,000 years. God dwells within us through his Holy Spirit, and he goes with us as we carry out that task. That is another implication of his resurrection. The victory that he has won, we are charged with proclaiming to the ends of the earth. And so you think about all of this together. I mean, what incredible news that is. What incredible, wonderful news. And Luke confirms for us, yes, Jesus' resurrection is historically accurate. Yes, Jesus' resurrection is theologically significant. And yes, Jesus' resurrection has lasting implications for us. And I would say all of that together ought to, it ought to elicit some type of response from us. We shouldn't just say, yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, there ought to be a response that comes. And, and I think we, what we see in the disciples at the end of Luke's gospel mirrors what ought to be seen in all of us today. So verse 50, as we conclude his gospel and he and Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So how did the disciples respond? Worship of God. Joy in God blessing or praising God. I mean, that's what we see in them. That's what ought to be seen in us, not just on Easter, right, but every single day. What better way to respond to the resurrection of Jesus than with worship, joy, and praise? I mean, I can't think of any better one. And, and again, that's every day. Jesus has risen every day. There's not a day that that's not true, but especially today, especially on Easter Sunday as we specifically gather and remember that and reflect on that. So that's what we're going to do together. We've been doing it already. We're going to continue. We're going to close our time together this morning, joyfully worshiping and praising our risen Savior through the closing songs that we sing. So would you stand with me? Let's, let's do that together. Jesus, we are so thankful. We're so thankful for, for what took place on the cross, but also what took place 
in the tomb. It, it changes everything. It truly changes everything, God. And I pray that you would help us, each one of us here, to grasp that more and more. That we would come to understand in a deeper way your love for us, the salvation that you offer to us, the victory that you have won. And God, I pray that, that, that through your word, through the Bible, that you would open our hearts like we, we saw happen a couple different times in Luke 24. Would your words speak to us and, and enlighten us? God, we give you praise. We're so thankful that, that you are risen, that you are reigning, and that you're coming back. We know you ascended back into heaven, but we know with certainty, we have confidence that you will return. And we so look forward to that. God, my prayer is that our, our worship, our praise this morning would be honoring to you, that we would be doing it not out of obligation, not to keep up appearances, but because we're joyful. Because we're so joyful and we're appreciative and we love you because of what you have done in our lives and what you continue to do in our lives. And so God, would you accept our worship this morning? Would you go with us as we go out? Would you have your way in and among us? We pray these things in your name. Amen.